so we're taking a break from our series on Revelation, and as we do the Advent series that Eric will be preaching on, and of course we're going to start the Advent series off with that famous Christmas story of David and Goliath. I believe Eric will explain. Our scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel 17, 31 through 54. I invite you to follow along. If you do not have a Bible with you, please use one, feel free to use one of the Red Pew Bibles in front of you. Again, 1 Samuel 17, 31 through 54. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put on a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch on his shepherd's bag, and, with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little more than a boy, glowing with the health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver into your, you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shemer road to Gath and Ekron. 
When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. This is the word of the Lord. I'll explain that scripture reading in a minute since Brian called me out. First, before we pray and dive into this text, a word about what we're going to be doing the next few weeks. It is, uh, every year we take a break around Advent to have a few sermons reflecting on the theme as we enter this season where we anticipate Jesus is coming. It's often remarked, if you've ever been around a church, about how you can lose sight of Jesus at Christmas time, right? You can, you know, take the Christ out of Christmas. You can get so busy with all the buying presents and cooking food and family plans that you sight of Jesus. But I've always felt like that observation is really a symptom of a deeper danger. It's not just that you can kind of lose sight of Jesus at Christmas time, you can lose sight of Jesus in Christianity as a whole. Too often the Christianity in our world can end up being almost Christless, talking about other good things but not enough about Jesus. Which is a tragedy because Christianity is of course about Jesus sermon series. So what we're going to do over the next few weeks is just take some different themes, and in each case we're going to talk about how they are about Jesus. Uh, with that said, let's pray and dive in this week. God and Father, I thank you for the work that you have done and are continuing to do through Jesus Christ in our midst. May our hearts be ever attentive to him. May you be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word, and be with me, though I'm a sinner, all of this in the name of Jesus. So this story of David battling Goliath is probably the most famous story in the Old Testament. Maybe one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. It is my son Canaan's favorite story in the Bible, he tells me. And you can see why, right? This boy fresh from the pastures comes and kills this giant, and there's just enough violence to be kind of salacious for young readers and feel like they're getting away with something. It's a famous story. And people like to talk about David and Goliath stories in our world, right? It's the term that you hear used to compare the story to stories of like the, the rookie pitcher, you know, on this green team going up against the World Series champions and defeating them. Or, you know, the small town lawyer taking on the big city corporation or the rebel alliance flying against the Death Star. David and Goliath stories, we say. And here is how the story usually gets told frankly, how it usually gets preached. Usually it says, you know, there are Goliaths in the world, but you should be like David. You might be small, and you might only have a swing, but you just go out there and take those smooth stones and confront the giants, whatever those giants are, and you can defeat them. Go be like David. What I want to suggest is that that whole way of reading that story is actually misses what the story of David and Goliath about, and misunderstands how we're supposed to read the Bible. And it actually sets us up to fail in our lives. But to get there, because I know that's a provocative claim, here's what we're going to do this morning. First, we're not going to talk about this story. We're going to talk about this big picture idea, a big idea about how we should read the Bible. And then we're going to zoom in on the story of David and Goliath and talk about how it changes how we read that story. And then we're going to talk about how that affects how we live in the world. All right? And the big idea, which you can 
get from the title of the sermon is that the Bible is about Jesus. Which sounds obvious, but is not maybe as apparent as we realize. The Bible is about Jesus. So let's start here. There's this moment after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he meets two of his disciples on the road to this town called Emmaus. And they're kind of supernaturally prevented from recognizing Jesus. And he has a conversation with them. And in their mind, Jesus, who they followed, has just been crucified. And let me just pick it up in Luke 24. Jesus says to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Now, they just express that they're grieving and scared, and Jesus says, Hey, you fools, which is maybe insensitive, but notice the reason. He says, Did you not understand and believe what the prophets have spoken? And then after rebuking them, he goes on in verse 27, he says this. He says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to these disciples what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Just a note, because we might miss that. For Jewish readers in the first century, they would have divided the Old Testament, which was the scriptures they had at that time, into two parts. There was the law, which is the first five books, the books of Moses, and then there's the prophets. Sometimes they'd call it the prophets and the writings, but that was kind of the other set of books in the Old Testament. So when it says that in all of Moses and all the prophets, he's explaining it means all of it. And the New Testament says this a lot. In John 1, for example, Philip just becomes a disciple. He finds his brother Nathaniel and tells him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, the one the prophets foretold, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Or in the book of Acts, chapter 3. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have proclaimed these days. For a lot of Christians, I think here's how we think about the Old Testament. We think that there are these little isolated, like, Jesus bubbles that pop up every once in a while. These little, like, specific prophecies that, like, Jesus is going to come and be born in Bethlehem or something. And then we think of the rest of the Old Testament as about other stuff. It's about, like, Israel and the law and God and all this other weird stuff. But what Jesus and, and in other New Testament authors seem to be saying is that all of the scriptures, in this case for them, all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Every single prophet, whoever wrote, spoke of Jesus, and that the law of Moses is about Jesus. Or you could also see it if you, if that seems like a crazy idea to you in the book of Hebrews. The first eight chapters of the book of Hebrews are about how the Old Testament is about Jesus. And that book argues that the Old Testament prophets, that Moses, that the angels, that the temple, that the sacrifices, and that the priesthood of Aaron are all actually pointing to Jesus say, okay, how is that true? In what sense can those all be about Jesus? Let me um, try to sum it up. The, the simplest thing, way to th- see it is that in the New Testament, the understanding seems to be that all of the characters and themes of the Old Testament exist ultimately to point us to Jesus. That Jesus is the true and better expression of all of the themes of the Old Testament. He's the true and better expression. Let me try to work that out in practice then, because that seems really abstract. So, for example, in the Old Testament, we find this theme of God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle and in the temple. That God comes to his people to dwell with them, but throughout the Old Testament, we recognize how imperfect that is. God's people aren't worthy to have God dwelling in their midst. 
it's sort of just symbolic even that he does and that temple like only the high priest can go into it right into that most holy place where god dwells only one day of a year it's a very imperfect picture of god dwelling with his people jesus then in the new testament is viewed as the true and better temple in him god actually comes to dwell with us as one of us he takes on human flesh and enters the world and because jesus shares our humanity um, we're able to draw near and all approach god not just one high priest once a year or in the old testament we have this theme of sacrifice there's this whole system of sacrifices that are constantly being offered but even in the old testament you recognize that they're imperfect testament prophets themselves make clear that the sacrifices are only symbolic and besides as the author of hebrews points out if they actually solved the problem of sin you wouldn't have to kill bulls and goats over and over and over year in and year out but jesus then is viewed as the true and better sacrifice that he comes as our perfect representative our creator and redeemer and that he dies on our behalf to perfectly and fully pay for sins once for all and that's not just true of themes, it's also true, for example, of characters. So, for example, Moses leads God's people out of bondage and slavery and into a promised place of rest and communion with God. But Moses is a sinner and a mortal, and he's not even allowed to enter the promised land. And regardless, for, from our perspective, he died long ago. But Jesus, then, is the true and better Moses. He leads us out of bondage and slavery and into a place of rest and communion with God. But he does it perfectly and eternally, resurrected, standing in God's place, still leading us like Moses. And once you start to actually realize that that's how we're supposed to read the Bible, it's everywhere, man. Jesus is the true and better Adam, right? We're in Adam as our representative. We all sin and fail. In Jesus as our representative, we are all declared righteous and we have a new humanity on him. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, the, the, the head and vehicle through which God's promises come to us and through which that hope that for Abraham of all the nations being blessed was just a fleeting, distant idea in Jesus that's coming through. He's the true and better Joseph. His brothers sought to kill him and put him to death, but instead in their evil, God worked good and deliverance and salvation for God's people. He's the true and better Jerusalem, securing for us an eternal city of God where we can dwell, true and better prophet, God's word actually made flesh and spoken to us. And here's the thing, I could just keep going with that list, that in Jesus Christ, every theme and story of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment. They're all anticipating Jesus, which is to say that the Bible is about Jesus, as he said. So that might sound good. We might even say, oh, that's a cool idea. I agree in theory. But it can, might be still be hard in practice. So let's drill down a little bit, and we're going to take this story of David and Goliath, and we're going to ask, what is this story about? And I know, I just told you where we're going, right? <laughs> like, like, you know where this is probably headed from what we just said. But let's look at this story and see how we get there. So first of all, some background on the part of the story we read. I would have loved to have read all of 1 Samuel 17, but it's very long. And um, so what happens is Israel is out at war with the Philistines. And they are led by Saul, their king. And they're camped across this valley facing the Philistines. And every morning, Goliath, this giant of a man, terrifying to the Israelites, comes out and taunts the Israelites and demands a champion come out and fight him. And nobody in the Israelite army is willing to go out and fight Goliath. 
David is not a part of the Israelite army. He's been anointed as the future king of Israel, but he's still a farm boy at this point. But his brothers are in the army, and his dad sends him with some food to go to his brothers. And he hears Goliath come out and taunt Israel, and he says, why is nobody going out to fight him? Right? And word of this goes back to Saul, and, um, and it's clear that David is willing to go out and fight Goliath, and so King Saul brings in David. Now stop there, because this is where we need to talk. Even in that summary of the story, I think the main issue we have in how we read this story is that we identify ourselves with the wrong character. So here's a list of the characters, basically, in this story as I just told it to you, right? So you've got God, David and Goliath, you have Israel and Saul, and then you have God. God is also at work in this story. We tend to identify with David, but here's the question. We as God's people, who should we probably identify with first in this story on that list of characters? answer is probably Israel as God's people. Generally speaking, if the people of God are one of the characters in a Bible story, we should say, we as the people of God probably need to see ourselves as them. Um, So what's Israel's problem in this story? Well, they're afraid. Like we said, they're hiding in their tents afraid. But at a deeper level, Israel's problem has to do with another one of those characters, which is Saul. What's going on with King Saul? Well, the point of the story is actually pretty clearly Goliath comes out and says, who will be Israel's champion? Who will come and represent Israel and fight me? And who should the answer be? It should be King Saul, right? (laughs) Throughout the the narrative, it's made clear that the root problem for Israel is that they have this anointed king and champion who should go out and fight for them, and he doesn't. He's hiding in his tent, too. That's actually, you see that in the dialogue between Saul and David. It's kind of a ridiculous dialogue, if you notice it. And probably, actually, you see that in the whole thing with Saul's armor, that little aside. Most likely, Saul's thinking is, well, I can dress David up in my armor and put my helmet on him. And then if he goes out and gets killed, I can say, I did my best. But if somehow he goes out and defeats Goliath, then I can say, see, that was me. Right? I mean, because David's dressed up like that. But see where we're left then, right? God's people are afraid, and they need a champion to go fight for them. And Saul, who's this representative of sort of earthly power and earthly kingship, fails and is afraid too and does not go fight for them. And um, what God does is provide a champion to go out and fight for his people in David. And then as the story progresses, as we read it, what's very clear is that David is meant to be viewed as this vehicle through which God works salvation for his people. Sometimes people talk about David going out without any armor and with like a sling and they, they try to say that that's somehow why he won, that, like, he cleverly changed the, the parameters of the battle, and he was really mobile against Goliath's, like, heavy armor, and that's why he beat him. And that is not something you should get from the text. Um, what should clearly have happened to David in this story is that Goliath should have impaled him and laughed and triumphed, right? I mean, if, if running around without armor and just slings was actually an effective way to fight in the ancient world, then that's what people would have done. Um, Instead, David clearly understands that what makes the difference in the story is that God fights with him. So verse 37, for example, David says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And then again, he confronts Goliath. Verse 45, David says to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. A few verses later, 
God does this so that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So we'll spell this out. This is a story in which God's people are helpless and afraid, and God comes and rescues his people through a champion who is a human being and operating with divine power. God saves his people through this human being that's also operating with divine power that stands as their champion. Who is that about in the story of the Bible? That's about Jesus. This is not a story about how we ought to go slay Goliaths. It is a story about how in Jesus, God has. And also we should note, tied to that, you, like we said, you can't detach the story from the idea of kingship and Saul's kingship. Saul is Israel's king, and he's meant to be their champion, um, and his failure underlies his failure as a king— But David's success then, David's trust in the Lord, is what marks him in part as a true king of Israel. The purpose of Israel's king in the Old Testament was to have a representative through whom God leads his people and fights on their behalf. A representative through whom God leads his people and fights on their behalf. And again, that theme of kingship, which this story of David and Goliath is a part of, also is meant to find its fulfillment in Jesus. God himself comes in Jesus Christ to lead us as that king and fight our enemies on our behalf. All of which is to say, Jesus is the true and better David. The more we understand the story of David, the more we understand Jesus. First, let me just ask, do you feel excited by that? That's one of those themes that the more you recognize it, the more exciting it is, because the more you see Jesus and God's work of salvation in him popping up all through the Bible. But also, we can wonder, okay, that still sounds great, but then what does that mean for how I live? How does that affect my life? So let's shift gears one last time and talk about how first this specific story of David and Goliath, and then more broadly, the reality um, that the Bible is about Jesus should change how we live. First, the story of David and Goliath. At its most basic level, what we should realize from this story is that Jesus is our champion king. Jesus is our champion king, and part of being a Christian means living like that is true. One of the themes that's woven through the New Testament is that of the victory of God. That in Jesus, one of the things God does is defeats all of the powers of evil in our world. Jesus says it himself in John 12 as he's preparing for the cross. He says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. And what he's talking about there is his coming death and resurrection. Or Paul says it like this. He says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. The idea is this, right? Goliath is just one in a long line of enemies of the people of God in the Old Testament. And in Scripture, we see those individual specific enemies kind of grow up into this big picture of the enemies of us, that is the people of God. Who are our enemies? They are Satan. They are the world, meaning the systems of this world that oppose the kingdom of God. They are our own flesh and the sinfulness that dwells within us. They are death. They are hell. Those are the enemies that threaten to destroy and undo us. And left to ourselves, we cannot defeat those enemies. (laughs) They are bigger than any of us. Jesus Christ, our 
great champion king has come like David into the camp, and he has gone out, and he has done battle with, with Satan and hell and death and sin, and he has dealt them the fatal blow. Now, that does not mean that we don't do anything then, importantly. There is a role for us in this story, and you see it in the story of David and Goliath. At the end of the story, it says that when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the Philistines are defeated, ultimately by David defeating Goliath. But then, yeah, God's people, emboldened and led by this champion king, go out and engage in battle. But the battle that they're engaging in is really just a joining in the victory that God has already won his champions. And that is actually how we are called to view our present moments. Of course, we might not feel like that is particularly true at this moment. I mean, it's interesting preaching about the victory of God. Man, the last two weeks, like I have been to four funerals, and I'm going to another one tomorrow. I performed three of those funerals. Like, I, it does not feel like, you know, death is defeated, right? Right this moment for me, right? But and that's because, while we talk about this, Jesus' victory is not yet final. It won't reach its final completion until he comes again, and all of those forces of evil are finally judged and destroyed. But Jesus' victory is certain, Scripture is saying. It is certain because he has won them in his death and resurrection. And, and that pain we feel, it's like, it's like the thrashing around of a snake after its head has been crushed. That that is the, the pain and destruction of death and sin in this age. And we need to know that because the key to standing against those forces is to stand in the truth that Jesus has defeated them. The only way we can stand in this age against that darkness of death is in the truth that Jesus has already won the victory. I mean, man, like, like, like this, this morning in my car driving to church, I am feeling the weight of death and the brokenness of this world. And, you know, and I go turn on these hymns that are just declaring that death has been destroyed in Jesus. Because even though I'm grieving and feeling the darkness of them right now, I need that truth if I'm going to stand in the face of them. Well, think about it like this. There's a very famous passage in Ephesians 6 about how Christians are supposed to put on the armor of you know the passage, like Ephesians 6, 11, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Um, again, my kids like that armor of God passage. And I like, I remember as a kid having this, like, cheapo plastic, like, armor with, like, a breastplate that said faith on it, or stuff like that. Um, and I remember um, that. But the thing is, I think when I heard that idea as a kid, I had the idea that the armor of God essentially meant you need to get yourself ready and toughen yourself up and be really strong so that you can defeat Satan. I mean, you need to put on the belt of truth, which means basically you need to memorize the Bible, right? And the breastplate of righteousness, like, you got to be perfect, because if you're not perfect, you're not righteous, and so you won't be protected. And the shield of faith means you better not ever feel any doubts or anything, or else Satan's going to get you. And, um, and that was— the way I felt. And strikingly, that's really similar to this way of reading the story of David as being about us, right? It's like, you better go slay Goliath. Um, but the thing about Ephesians 6 and the armor of God, we read verse 11. Let me read you verse 10. Saul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord, Paul says. That's what the armor of God is supposed to be about. And each piece of that armor 
is actually meant to represent something about the victory that God has already won in Jesus. I mean, the belt of truth, that does not rec- that's not about me knowing the truth perfectly. That's about the fact that God has spoken the truth and that all the devil has was lies. The breastplate of righteousness is not about my personal righteousness. It's about the righteousness of Christ. In fact, that one, there's only one other time in Ephesians that God talks about the righteousness in chapter 4, where he says that we are to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Where Paul's saying what we have in Jesus is this new self, and it's something we simply put on, and then we have God's righteousness and holiness in Jesus applied to us. That's what the breastplate of righteousness is. The boots are our readiness given by the gospel of peace. Our shield is faith, meaning that we're protected simply by trusting in God and what he has done. Our sword is the Holy Spirit, the word of God, meaning essentially that we just turn God loose in his word, and he, by his word and his spirit, is the one that slays the forces of evil. Now again, we are fighting, right? Again, we're not saying that we're not struggling and fighting in that story, but the way we fight is by trusting in and walking forward in confidence we fight by trusting in and walking forward in confidence in the victory that our champion king, Jesus, has already won. That's the message. That's how we apply the story of David and Goliath, that we recognize and believe that. And then also let's talk more broadly, because that leads to the broader application of this idea that the Bible is about Jesus. Why does that big idea matter? Because it means that in every story of Scripture and in the stories of each of our lives, we need to recognize that Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. That is what every page of the Bible is supposed to teach us. That Jesus is the one who wins the victory and in whom we hope and trust. Like we said, the temple, right? That's not about us building a really grand house for God to come live in. That's about God condescending to dwell with humanity, and it's fulfilled in Jesus. The law, God's commandments, right? Like the, prime, the, the use of the law is not to justify ourselves before God, but it's first to show us our need for Jesus and the fact that we fall short of it, and only then after we are rescued in Jesus to begin to learn how to follow him. The kingdom, right? The kingdom of heaven is not a kingdom that we go out and build in this world. It's a kingdom that God is building in Jesus, and we simply live as citizens of. Jesus is the hero of Scripture's story. Jesus is the hero of the story of each of our lives. Our calling in Christianity at root is to get over ourselves and stop trying to be the hero. It's to stop trying to be the hero. And instead, our calling is to learn what it means to be rescued, to be saved. I mean, this is a root. You know why we tend to make the Bible about us? You know why we like to be David in the story of David and Goliath? It's because of our pride, right? Like when I read a fairy tale, I want to be the brave knight. I want to be the, the clever wizard or the, the you know, the, the mighty warrior. And that is understandable. It is also exhausting and terrifying and will destroy us because we're not that clever or mighty or brave and the world is full of dragons that will eat us alive. Christianity says instead, in essence, is that in the story that we are in, we are like the harebrained squire or the helpless damsel. 
That's us in the story of the universe. Um, we are the ones that need to be rescued from the dragons. And again, I know in our pride, that is the story that we struggle to accept. Right? We, we don't want to be that place in the story. But the reason that we have to recognize that is that one of the hardest, most essential, most freeing things we can learn is that that is who we are and that in Jesus, God has rescued us. Learn how to be saved. How to stop listening to the demands and the lies of our pride and to say instead, yes, this is a giant that I cannot beat. This is a dragon that I cannot slay, but I am trusting in good news then of the Bible story is as we learn to take that posture, as we learn to allow ourselves to be saved, recognizing that we cannot rescue ourselves, that is a place that God will always come and meet us. The prayer for God's salvation is a prayer he will always answer. Because in Jesus, it is a prayer that he already has. So that is the first of these four pieces of it all being about Jesus. We're going to reflect on this when you read the Bible, it is about Jesus. He is the hero of this story. Let's rejoice in him as our champion saint. Would you pray with me? God and Father, I thank you that in Jesus Christ you have come near to us. You have been working in all of history, in all kinds of ways, to work our salvation. Teach us to trust in you and hope in you and walk out into the darkness with the sure and certain knowledge that you have triumphed in Jesus Christ. Pray this all in his name.